in your Bibles, will you go with me to Luke chapter 10 this morning? Luke chapter 10. A few weeks ago, toward the end of Luke chapter 9, we saw that Jesus was beginning a turn toward Jerusalem. And his eyes were fixed on the goal that his father had sent him to accomplish. And so really beginning in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, we see Jesus on the road toward Jerusalem, toward the cross. And several events take place during that journey. And the one that we're going to focus on this morning in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25, is a story that is very familiar to us, but one that I think we need to think about more often and apply to our lives. And this particular story is unique to Luke. He's the only gospel writer that includes this parable of the Lord. Verse 25 says that on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Let's bow in prayer together. Father in heaven, I pray that as we spend these next few minutes in your word together, that you would bless this time through the outpouring of your spirit, that your Holy Spirit would accompany the word of God and make it powerful, effective in our hearts and lives. Father, help us to see from your word areas of our lives where we may not be uh, fulfilling what Jesus is teaching us in this passage. Help us, Lord, to have a heart of love for our neighbor that Jesus is teaching us. 
So Lord, take these words and apply them to our hearts. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. In Scripture, there is an inseparable connection between loving God and loving people. It is impossible to do one without the other. Here are just a few examples from Scripture. John 13, verse 34, Jesus says, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So in that passage, Jesus says, here's how people can tell if you are a disciple of Jesus, if you love one another. John, in his letter, 1 John, makes it even uh, very clear, this connection between loving God and loving neighbor and how they're inseparable. He says in 1 John 4.20, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. John says it's impossible for you to say you love God and not love your brother and sister in Christ. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, he says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. In that passage, John says, this is the mark of the new birth that you love one another. If you don't love one another, you've not been born of God. 1 John 3, 17 and 18, John says that love needs to not just be something that we say, but needs to be something that is put into action. He says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Notice in verse 17, he says, you can't notice someone who has a need and not meet it and say that you have the love of God in you. There's this tight connection between loving God and loving neighbor. But we really can't be expected to love everyone, right? I mean, that's a big ask. We can't really love everybody. I mean, the passages that we just read from the Gospel of John and the letter of 1 John, all of those passages are in the context of loving other Christians, aren't they? Love one another, love your brothers and sisters in Christ, love the family of God. That is true. Those passages in John and 1 John are in the context of loving fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Our natural tendency is to love the lovable, isn't it? Our natural tendency is to like the likable, to help people that are easy to help, to help those that we enjoy helping. But Christ is calling us to more than that, isn't he? Christ calls us to love not just our brothers and sisters in Christ, not just the ones that are in the family of God, not just the ones that treat us well, but Christ teaches us to love everyone, even those that hurt us. Remember earlier in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, this is what Jesus taught his disciples in verse 27. To you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. 
do good to those who hate you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you'll be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. And so Jesus says, we have a calling from God to love even the unlovable. Because if we are children of our heavenly father, then we will mirror the heavenly image. And the image of God is that he loved the unlovable. He loved sinners. He loved those that were ungrateful. He loved the wicked. And so we are called to be merciful like our father is merciful. But we might be sitting here thinking, but still, we can't love everyone, right? I mean, we've got to draw the line somewhere. Surely there are some people that we shouldn't love, some people that don't deserve to be loved. Well, that seems to be the attitude of this expert in the law that came to Jesus that day in the Gospel of Luke. He came to Jesus and asked him a question, and it seems that his purpose in asking the question was to test Jesus, but then also to try to narrow the definition of who we have to love. Who's my neighbor, he said. And so it seems like he was trying to bring this down and restrict it and and come up with a, a narrow, smaller definition of who our neighbor is. But Jesus' story in the parable of the Good Samaritan won't allow him to have that justification, to narrow the definition of neighbor. I think the lesson from this passage is clear this morning, and that is that a disciple of Jesus will perform acts of love and kindness for other people, no matter who they are. A disciple of Jesus Christ will perform acts of love and kindness for other people, no matter who they are, even if they are enemies. And so we have this story from the Gospel of Luke. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Now, an expert in the law, when we think of law, we think of a lawyer in our context, which means constitution, legislature, state laws, laws of code, and all of this. And that's not what it means when it says that this man was an expert in the law. When it says he was an expert in the law, he's an expert in the law of God. He's an expert in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He's an expert in the scriptures. He is most likely a scribe, perhaps even someone who wrote and copied the scriptures. He knew them very well. He probably had large sections of what we consider the Old Testament memorized. And so he knew his stuff. He knew the Bible better than anyone in this room. And he comes up to Jesus and he asks him this question. And it says that he asked him this to test him. So it seems like he has some malicious motive involved. Perhaps he's a Pharisee. 
He's, he's a part of the religious establishment that maybe is against Jesus and is trying to find a way to trip him up. But he asks him this question, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I love how Jesus does this. He does this in a lot of places when he is being put on the spot, when he's being tested, when someone's trying to trip him up, he just gently turns it back to the person and asks them a question. He says, well, what's written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? And so he turns him back to the scriptures, doesn't he? He turns him back to the books of Moses. And he says, what do you read there? You're an expert in the law. What have you read? And the man answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And that's a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And then he says, and love your neighbor as yourself, which is from Leviticus 19, the passage that we read a little bit earlier in the service this morning. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so he goes to Deuteronomy and Leviticus and puts these two commands together and says, we need to love God and love our neighbor. And Jesus says, that's right. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, I think sometimes we get tripped up by wondering, uh, or I think some have missed the point by asking, is this lawyer trying to have a kind of a work salvation mindset? Is he saying, what do I have to do to have eternal life? And, and I think that's kind of missing the point of the passage because Jesus really doesn't rebuke him for what he says. He says, you've answered right. You've answered correctly. In fact, he commends the man's answer as the right one. To love God and love others is fundamental to Jesus' teaching. So he doesn't say you're wrong in your answer. On, on the face of it, the man's answer was right. How is that? How, how is he not, uh, how is he not uh, involved in trying to justify himself in work salvation? It's because loving God and loving neighbor is a part of regeneration, isn't it? It's a part of the new birth. And it assumes faith. It assumes faith in God. It assumes faith in Jesus Christ. Loving God, loving others is like the, uh, uh, a baby crying. It is, it is natural. It is, it is what comes from those who have been born again into the family of God. Now, one of the things that may have brought up this lawyer's question and got him to ask this, and, and they would debate this back and forth as teachers of the law from time to time. There's probably a passage like Daniel chapter 12 in the back of this uh, lawyer's mind. He says in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So Daniel 12 is a passage about a future bodily resurrection that probably clearer than any other passage in the Old Testament establishes that at the final resurrection, there will be a division. 
between the righteous and the wicked, the righteous going on to everlasting life, but the wicked to judgment. And so this man may have a passage like Daniel 12 in his mind when he asks, so how do we get what Daniel chapter 12 verse 2 is saying? How do, how do I know that I can have eternal life in the end? Jesus turns it back to him and says, what does the scripture say? And he answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, that's correct. You have answered correctly. And so this man is thinking along the right lines on the face of it. But as Jesus often does, he sees through the facade, doesn't he? He sees through the exterior. He sees that while the man has a correct answer in his head, his heart is nowhere near where that answer needs to be. It, it reminds me really of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus with the same question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And remember Jesus' response to him? He said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and then you'll have eternal life. And what happened to the rich young ruler? What happened to him? He walked away sad, right? He walked away sorrowful. Why? Because he had many riches. Jesus saw his heart. Jesus knew that he was not willing to trade anything really for the kingdom of God. And so he walked away sorrowfully. In this instance, Jesus sees his heart, sees that there's a disconnect between the mental answer of love your God and love your neighbor as yourself and what this man really thought in his own mind and heart. And the man says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Because he wants to justify himself. What does that mean? He wants to self-justify. He wants to show that he is fulfilling the law. What did Jesus say after he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, love your neighbor. Jesus says, you've answered correctly. And then what did he say? Go do that, right? Go do that. Well, if I'm going to go do that, I got to make sure it's something that's doable. So let me narrow this down as far as I can so that I can justify myself and say that I am fulfilling the law. I'm fulfilling what Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19 is telling me to do. And so he's trying to shrink his circle of neighbors so that he can feel relatively secure in his position of having eternal life. And he's clearly coming from the standpoint that some are worthy of help and some are not. In other words, I'm not really expected to love everyone, am I? There's a set of books that were written between the Testaments, between Malachi and Matthew. Sometimes they're referred to as the intertestamental literature, sometimes the apocryphal uh, books, the apocryphal literature. They're not included in our Bibles because the church historically has not viewed them as scripture, as canonical received scripture. But sometimes reading them can give you a window into the mindset of that period, of that time between the Testaments and really that the first couple of centuries before the time of Christ and what was in their thinking. And so in the book of Sirach, again, one of these intertestamental books that are not included in the scriptures, 
It says this, if you do good, know to whom you do it and you'll be thanked for your good deeds. Do good to the devout and you'll be repaid. If not by them, certainly by the most high. No good comes to one who persists in evil or to one who does not give alms. And I noticed this quote from the book of Sirach. Give to the devout, but do not help the sinner. There's a reason why these books aren't in the scripture, right? That doesn't really fit with anything that we read in the scriptures. Help the devout, help the righteous, but sinners don't help them at all. Well, Jesus would be in big trouble based on that account, wouldn't he, in his life and ministry, because Jesus often helped sinners and was a blessing to them. He healed them. He went to their homes and ate with them. But that mindset might, or that quote might give us a little bit of insight into the mindset of this expert in the law of, yeah, I'll love my neighbor as long as my neighbor is good. And as long as my neighbor is helpful and he's righteous and he's a good neighbor, but I'm not going to help my neighbor if he's a scoundrel or if he is mean to me or if he has mistreated me in the past or if he is a foreigner. And so the man is trying to justify himself, trying to shrink his circle of who his neighbor is so that he can love the lovable and like the likable. So Jesus tells him a story to make a point to him, to help him see his own heart and see what he's really saying. And so Jesus tells this parable. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Going down from Jerusalem to Jericho was really kind of a treacherous journey. When we say, I'm going to go down somewhere, we mean we're going down south, right? We think of down as south and up as north. But in the biblical way of thinking, down was literally down. You were descending down the mountain or you were going up, up in elevation, ascending up the mountain. And so going from Jerusalem to Jericho meant coming down Mount Zion, coming down the hill, very rocky, winding paths, sometimes very isolated It was about a 17 mile trip of rocky terrain, mountains and caves, which made good places for hiding for robbers and thieves. And there would be times when you would make that trip and you would be in a maybe more isolated area where you would be vulnerable to befalling something like this. And so in this story that Jesus tells, there was this man who was going to Jericho and in the the process of his travels, He was mugged. A group of thieves jumped out and beat him up, took his clothes and his money and left him for dead on the side of the road. We don't, I mean, we can imagine that, right? We can put ourselves in that situation of being there, having been attacked, helpless. You're so wounded that you can't even get up. Along comes a priest in Jesus' story. A priest happened to be going down the same road. Hey, this is great. Help is here, right? Here's a man of God, a religious man. Surely he would have compassion on the man, right? No. He saw the man. 
And if he was walking on the same side of the street, he moved to the other side of the street. He put as much distance as he could between him and the man, and he just kept right on walking. Didn't stop at all. He purposely walked by on the other side. Verse 32 says, well, here comes another one, a Levite. Well, maybe he will help. He is a part of the tribe that was designated to take care of the tabernacle, the temple, to take care of the holy vessels and to assist the priests in their daily activities, in worship, in the house of God. It'd be like a preacher and then a deacon walked by, right? A preacher walked by, a deacon walked by, a Levite comes by, well, maybe he'll stop and help. No, he goes to the other side and he keeps, he keeps on going too. He doesn't stop. And some have read this passage and said, well, maybe the priest or the Levite did not want to become ceremonially unclean because they're on their way to minister in the temple in Jerusalem. Maybe he was afraid that if he stopped and helped, he would be attacked by robbers. And so some have tried to excuse the priest and the Levite here But that misses the point that Jesus is making, isn't it? It really doesn't matter. The point is that they did not show love and compassion on the man. And we've seen from Jesus' ministry time after time and from his teaching that paying attention to small matters of ceremonial law should not overpower our responsibility to show love and compassion to our neighbor. Jesus showed many times at his ministry that he was not concerned about ceremonial uncleanness when he reached out and grabbed the hand of a leper. Jesus showed many times that he was not concerned about all the little rules and additions to the law that the Pharisees put on the Sabbath day when he would heal someone on the Sabbath day. The the principle that Jesus is showing in all of those instances is it is more important to show love and compassion and mercy to a human being than it is to make sure that you have all of your X's and Y's crossed and your your T's crossed and your I's dotted and all of these little laws taken care of. Doesn't matter if the priest was trying to avoid becoming ceremonial unclean. He, He left a man dying on the side of the road. And so Jesus is teaching this man something here. And, and why do you think he uses a priest and a Levite? Well, who's he talking to? He's talking to a member of the religious establishment, isn't he? He's talking to a scribe, an expert in the law. And the implication is, what would you do? What would you do? The priest walked by, a Levite walked by. What would you do? And at this point in the story, as Jesus often does in his parables, there's a shocking turn of events, a a mouth-dropping turn of events. We've read this parable so many times. We know this parable almost by heart, the parable of the Good Samaritan. We have hospitals named Good Samaritan Hospital, Samaritan's Purse, Operation Christmas Child. We name things about giving and helping others after the word Samaritan. But I think because we throw that word around so much, we don't stop and think about the ethnic significance of what is being said here. 
the Jews hated the Samaritans and the Samaritans hated the Jews. They didn't like each other at all. They would do everything they could to avoid one another. Jews would go around Samaria when they were going from Galilee to Judea in the south. They would go around Samaria to not have to go through there and deal with Samaritans. They would take the long way around. They did not like each other at all. And so this little twist, this little plot twist that Jesus throws in here would have been shocking to the man, as well as shocking to anyone who was around listening to this parable of Jesus. They would have been mouth on the floor. I can't believe he just said that. A Samaritan. In other words, the most unlikely person that you could possibly imagine in that day and cultural setting, the most unlikely person stopped and helped him. I hope I'm not transgressing a boundary here when I use this illustration, but it might, all, it might almost be like a Jew during World War II stopping to help a wounded German soldier. That's how big of a, of, of a gap we're talking about here. He stopped. He looked at the man. He went over to him. He had pity on him. And he took him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on him oil and wine. And he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. Notice all the things involved in this. Time, right? Just, just enough to stop and take time and pay attention. So many of us are just like, oh, I got to be here. I got to do this. I got to be over here and finish this. And, and we don't take time. He stopped and he took time. He, he was dealing with something unpleasant, wasn't he? I mean, bandaging up wounds, bleeding, broken bones, perhaps. That's not the most enjoyable of tasks, is it? That's a difficult task. Some people just don't even like to do that at all. Could not even imagine themselves doing that. And so he took time to do an unpleasant task for someone who naturally should have been his enemy. And he invested not only time and effort, but also money into this man's care. He put oil and wine on him. That was his own. That would have cost him money. He put the man on his own donkey. He walked along the side of the road while the injured man rode on the donkey. He brought him to an inn and took care of him. That cost money. And then the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. A a denarius was probably about a day's wage. So today's terms, maybe he gave him a couple hundred dollars, two or three hundred dollars to make sure that this man had what he needed to be taken care of. And he said, look after him. And if it costs you more than that, when I come back, I will repay you. The Samaritan not only helps the man, but he goes the extra mile, doesn't he? He goes way above what would be expected. He took the time. He made the effort. He stopped. He helped. 
he took out of his own resources to pay for this man's recovery. And so here's the question for us. Who is our neighbor? Who is our neighbor? Let me give us a few things here that I think can help answer that question. The man was trying to justify himself, right, by by shrinking his window of who his neighbor was, or shrinking his circle of who his neighbor was. Jesus is expanding his circle. At the end, he says, so who do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he says, well, the man who stopped and the man who helped. The one who had mercy on him. And Jesus says, that's right. Now you go and do likewise. Now, we have, we can't help everyone. And by everyone, I mean, there are 7 billion people in the world, right? We have limited time, limited resources, limited opportunities. So we can't help everyone, but a neighbor could potentially be anyone. And there are some things that go into that that I think will help us understand what Jesus is trying to say. One is the principle of humanity. The principle of humanity. The Jew, the Samaritan, they didn't like each other. Ethnically, they were different. Religiously, they were different. Culturally, they were different. They tried to stay away from each other as much as possible. But they were both fellow human beings, weren't they? Every human being, regardless of language, of culture, of race, color of skin, ethnicity, nationality, whatever kind of label you want to put in there, every human being is made in the image of God. And every human being is worthy of respect as an image bearer of God. And we are all, in a long distance sense, brothers and sisters, because we all come from Adam and Eve, don't we? If you believe the Bible, we all come from the same ancestor. And Paul even affirms that in Acts chapter 17, when he's talking to the Greeks in Athens, he says, God has made from one man, all tribes, all peoples that should live on the face of the earth. So there's the principle of humanity. Who is my neighbor? Is this person a human being, an image bearer of God? Then he is potentially my neighbor. There's the principle of opportunity. And by the principle of opportunity, I mean that we're not going to be able to help everyone because not everyone, everyone's problems is known to us. And we have limited resources. We're finite creatures, right? So there's the principle of opportunity. And that is when something comes up that we see. Like, like John said in 1 John chapter 3, if, if someone sees his brother or sister have a need, but shuts up his compassion toward him, how does the love of God dwell in that person? So it's seeing something. It's the opportunity. As James would say in James chapter 4, to the person who knows to do good and does not do it, 
to him it is what? It's sin, isn't it? And that's in the context of this passage of if the Lord wills, we'll live and do this or that. In other words, God is the sovereign providential one who opens up doors of opportunity for us. And if God in his providence opens up a door of opportunity for us and we don't take that opportunity at that moment, then we have sinned because that opportunity was placed in front of us by the providential hand of God. And we knew to do good, but we did not do it at that moment. It was sin. So there's the principle of opportunity. The priest had the opportunity. He passed by. The Levite had the opportunity. He passed by. The Samaritan saw he had the opportunity and he took the opportunity. He seized upon it to do good and have compassion. So there's the principle of humanity, the principle of opportunity. There's the principle of uh, locality, you might say. How close are they to you and to your situation? I say, we got to solve world hunger. World hunger, that's a big problem. And there are people, yes, we're going through difficult times in Africa, and we probably have a role to play in helping fight world hunger. But there's someone living right next door to me, right? There's someone who lives in my town. There's someone in my church. There's someone in my workplace. They're near me. Those are the people that God has put near me. And he's put those people near me to help them and to serve them. And so there's a principle of locality, of nearness. So the question is, who is my neighbor? Well, it doesn't matter what kind of human being they are. If they're a human being, they're an image bearer of God. And they're worthy of honor. They're worthy of help. Has this person been placed in my path? in my opportunity? Is this person near me to where I can be a help? Do I have the resources? Do I have the time? Do I have the ability? These are things that God has given to us to answer the question, who is my neighbor? And really the answer is this, who is my neighbor? Potentially anyone. Potentially anyone. Even someone that we may not naturally like. Or naturally love. A disciple of Jesus Christ will perform acts of love and kindness for other people no matter who they are. And I say acts of love and kindness because we have to go beyond words, don't we? We have to go beyond words. Again, John in 1 John chapter 3, if anyone has material possessions, and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Now, there's all kinds of questions that come up in our minds when we think about the opportunities to help people that we may see. There may be somebody along the side of the road with a flat tire. Do we stop and help? There are legitimate questions of safety. There are legitimate questions of, is this a setup? Does this look right? Is, you know, did I see it happen? There are legitimate questions of safety. And I think we have to take those into account. But again, we have to be willing to even offer that which is, uh, that costs us something. Not saying to put your life in danger, but 
there may be times when we have to take a risk to help somebody. What about those who take advantage Whenever topic of charity or or helping others comes up, there's always this question of what about people that just take advantage? They, They want to take your money and use it for stuff that they shouldn't be using it on. Well, yeah, that happens. And if you can discern that, then don't enable someone's bad habits. But if you're not sure, I always say err on the side of generosity and on helping others. And God will hold them accountable one day for the way they took that from you. But I don't want to be held accountable for having a closed heart and not helping people when they need help. And so may God open our eyes to see opportunities. May God enlarge and open our hearts to include more neighbors into our thinking process of who is my neighbor. And may we be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, loving one another. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father in heaven, we understand what this passage is teaching us. It is very hard for us in our natural condition to put this into practice in our sinful uh, the remnant of our sinful nature that that still clings to us. We are selfish. We don't like to be bothered, troubled. There are some people that are easier to like than others. Father, this passage challenges us with something very difficult. Father, I pray that you would give us grace. Give us a heart of, of Christ Give us your heart, Father, that is merciful towards sinners. And Father, I pray that more and more as we grow in Christ-likeness, that we will uh, reflect your image, Father, who loves sinners and shows mercy to them. Lord, may we be merciful and compassionate as you were merciful and compassionate to us. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.